0: Amen. Let's uh, please take your seats. Let's give this worship team a good encouragement. They lead us so well. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, and, uh, and uh, hello to Church at 33. Hello to South Congregation mingling around. Hello to everybody joining us online, and uh, I'm excited to share the Word of God with you this morning uh, you know at Christmas where you purposely plan ahead to wear especially elasticated pants? You know that? You're like, I'm going to plan ahead because today I'm going to consume a lot of food. Well, I hope you brought your elasticated pants with you because there's a lot to consume this morning. And I'm really believing that uh, God is going to speak to you. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a meaty subject And we're going to jump off what Phil shared last week in the Jesus Code, the series, and I'm really excited to share this important message with you. If you do have your Bibles, we are going to show it on the screen from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to get going, and uh, I want you to remember as we go through this scripture and through this message, the resounding question I always ask, and I know Phil is the same uh, we ask is, so what? This is great information but how does this help me be a better person in the culture that we are living in that God has called us to regardless of our ages today? And so we want to make this very, very practical as we go. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 and, uh, and verse 1 through to uh, 3. Let's get going. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from the, any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from, your eye, that from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And We thank God for his word. This morning, this is a deeply uh, meaningful, beautiful, and sometimes confusing story. And when Phil launched us into the series last week, he introduced us to this creation story. But here's what I, I want us to just get kind of in our mind right from the beginning I don't want you to get lost in the details. I don't want you to get lost in the details, and we're all about preaching exegetically through the scripture, word by word if it means that is the best way, but with this story we need to remember that the Bible, and we're looking at this over the next few weeks, is a a massive meta-narrative, it has a master idea, and his name is Jesus, that's why we call it the Jesus Code. And the Bible is filled with hyperlinks. That's not my idea. This has been used in in reference to how to look at the Bible. If you go on a website, there's hyperlinks all over. You can go in all sorts of different directions to continue the story on. And so we need to approach this story knowing that we're looking at mega themes through the Bible. And the ultimate mega theme, the big idea of the Bible is Jesus. That's what this series is about, the Jesus Code. I like what uh, Craig Bartholomew said. He said, the Bible has the shape of a story that is an immense, sprawling, capricious narrative. It functions as the authoritative word of God. We believe that at Willow Park Church. For us, when it comes, the one basic story through which we understand our own experience and thought and the foundation upon which we base our decisions and our actions. So this might irk some of you what I'm about to say. You might see the creation story as a parable. You might see it as literal. You might see it as specific days in time. You might look at it through a different lens. And here's where both camps, I'm going to disappoint you straight away, we're not going to go there this morning. We're not going to go there this morning because what I want us to do, what I believe the scripture is asking us to do this morning, is to look at it and find ourselves in the story, but more importantly, find God, find Jesus in the story. Because we can get caught up with the details, so much so that we focus so much on the details that we lose the meta narrative. And I love talking about creation. I think creation is really, really important. But that's not our job this morning. I want us to focus in on seeing how we can find God, how we can find ourselves, and how we can allow the story to influence our lives. It's been said that when you read the Bible, that we don't read the Bible, that the Bible reads us. I want that to be the case this morning. Allow this story to read us because we will miss the deep meaning because we get caught up with the details, the details being, well, the talking snake, that's a, that's a big white snake in the room, and then whether or not Eve, uh, Eve can speak parcel tongue. That's a, big, that's a big thing in the room as well, like how does this work, like, look, preach on that, Glenn, but we're about life transformation in this church. And it's lovely to talk about these things. And those of you who know me well enough, I jump into this stuff. Love it. But this morning, let's allow to find ourselves and Jesus and allow the story to influence our life. Because before we, we jump into the creation and the fall specifically, which is a major theological uh, truth in the scripture, this is what we've just read, we need to remember a couple of things that we know to be true. First of all, we can all agree, Christian or not, sceptical or not, atheist or not, we can see that our world is both beautiful And horrendously, horrifically messed up. You only need to go onto the news for a few seconds to see that our world, we can find evidence of the creation and the beauty and the glory of God. And we can also find lots of evidence to see that our world is filled with evil. And if we make it even more micro and just on me and myself and ours, why is it I'm messed up? Why is it that humans are capable of tremendous good and horrendous evil as well? What's that all about? See, this is what we find in this story. How is it that we can be so amazing in certain parts of our lives and so awful in others? How is it that you can be a fantastic leader or employee or employer and yet have horrible, awful relationships at home? How can those things both be true? And so what is all that about? What are we to do about it? What can I do about it? What is Jesus doing about it? That's what we see in this story. And I find that far more important today than whether or not Eve could speak to a snake. And if we get caught up with those details and it distracts us from the major narrative, it's a little bit like going to watch this mega movie like Dune that I still don't understand. And get so caught up with the tiny little details that we miss the big story. Or watching Lord of the Rings so caught up with the tiny details that we miss the story. So let's look at the story this morning knowing that we can all agree that humanity, atheist or not, skeptic or not, that our world is beautiful and it's messed up. And what's that all about? Secondly, we're all hardwired as humans. Atheist or not, again, doesn't matter. We're all hardwired to flourish. To seek ways to flourish. And we'll use all sorts of different things in order to see that come about in our lives. For some of you, you enjoy chasing after interests or hobbies or creatives. For some of you, you believe that flourishing and thriving is found in, uh, in the business world or in your family or your kids. And all those things are good. So we can be agreed that actually we've been created, almost designed, if you will, to flourish. So the world is beautiful, it's messed up, and in the middle of it all, you've got the humans, you and I, who go, actually, somehow I just know that I can be better than I am right now. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, used the term human flourishing. I like that. I like that. Another theologian, Jonathan Pennington, picks up on that theme. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the no, desire for life and flourishing. Individually and corporately. See, I would say as a Christian, that is in itself a clue to the existence of God. That we all want good. Deep down inside, it might be well buried, but deep down inside we want good. Love, joy, peace, patience, the kingdom of God. He goes on every person has a powerful, relentless drive to experience shalom, peace through right relationships with God, with our families, with our communities, and with the physical creation. This is because shalom was God's original design in creation. And we will see restoration of shalom is his design in redemption. In other words, God created us to have shalom to flourish, and he also put a plan in place to bring us back to that place of flourishing through Jesus Christ. That's the mega theme. That's the narrative. All hyperlinks point to that truth, including right at the beginning in this scripture. That God's plan was profound, it was loving, it was incredible. That we were made for a purpose. One of the deepest lies that somehow the enemy has put into place in this culture is that you are an accident. Some of you have been told you were an accident. Mom and dad did not want you. Some of you still have that lie reverberating through your life that you're an accident. And God would say, no, actually, you're not. The fact that you are living and breathing, you have purpose. And right at the beginning, we see that God made humanity for a purpose. And the purpose was to gaze at delight at a loving creator, God. To express the worship of that in our lives. And for generosity and humility to reign. All the time representing him on the planet. All the time showing people around us that I serve a God. I'm his representative. That's God's purpose. That is the code. That is the mega theme all through Jesus. You have a purpose. Your purpose is to worship a loving creator God. God. For us to live generous and humble lives, to continually represent him and point people to Jesus. What an amazing purpose. It's almost like God is the divine writer of a beautiful play. It's perfect. It's a perfect play. And there are no small parts. And we believe that you have been called to take part in this beautiful divine play. And this divine play has all the markers of a thriving and flourishing life. All the things that we collectively strain after: love and joy and peace and patience and relationship and flourishing. And God put this beautiful play together right at the start to act on his behalf and his instruction. And if you if you would just forgive me some paraphrasing, is this follow my script, he said. Follow the script. And you'll flourish. You'll live, the scripture says, and you will not die. You'll live if you follow the script that God has placed upon your life. And not only will you live, I'm not talking about surviving. I'm not even talking about success. I'm talking about being significantly flourishing in your life. That regardless of what you are doing, what your age is, where you live, anything like that, any of those so-called limiting factors that we place upon ourselves, yeah, well, if this was different, then I would flourish. If I was married to somebody different, then I would flourish. If I could just get an added zero to the end of my wage, then I would flourish. God says, regardless of all that, all you need to do is follow the script that I have put into place in creation, hardwired in, and you will flourish. And we see evidence of it everywhere. I was so blessed this last week, and thank you for praying. I went representing Willow Park Church to Manchester. It's always a joy um, for me to go back to the homeland, and especially Manchester United. And, um, and, and I, I, I have to admit that God really spoke to me there. I was both convicted and inspired, I was very inspired. I was even more convicted, and conviction is always a good thing, because conviction leads to busting out of comfort often, and um, the, one of the th- there was three things that I went to look at, there is a evolving prayerful, as Phil would say, thought experiment, we're praying through some different possibilities for us as a church, for us to join with our friends, the message trust over there and Andy Hawthorne was here a few weeks ago sharing some of it. I wanted to go and see and, and dig in a little bit and find out what was actually happening, not in a suspicious kind of way, but in a Lord just speak to me kind of way. And one of the things, and remember I'm talking about evidences of God's flourishing and how as Christians we're called to represent him. There was three, three ways that I saw that happen in Manchester. First one was through something called the community grocery. This is a a grocery that is inside a church, an amazing church. They've taken over a place, an old mill um, in, in Manchester. And the idea, I'm not going to go into great detail, is that people come and they get some food. Now you go, ah, food bank. Except this. Their priority is not to get food into the hands of needy people, although that's good. Their priority is to get Jesus into the lives of those needy people and they use food to enable them to do that. Not in a switch and bait kind of way, but in a way where they're showing, we're going to show you the love of God, that's what we were created to be. And we want you to point, we're representing God on this planet, that's the kingdom of God. That is, as uh, Phil prayed earlier on, that we would see heaven on earth, thy kingdom come, not some future event when I pop my clogs and I die, but now. So they open these community groceries, and people come in, and, and they get some food, but in order to join, they need to sit down with one of the people who work there, who are committed Christians, and they say, look, you need to understand, you join the community grocery, we have an end goal in, in mind, and his name's Jesus. You good with that? Have you heard of Alpha? Because you will soon. Have you heard again about Christians Against Poverty? We believe in that. So don't join unless you are ready to be pulled in, if you like, in a godly way, into the family. Big difference between handing out, nothing wrong with that. And we, we love our uh, food bank brothers and sisters, but this is different. So there's one community grocery in Withenshaw in Manchester that they had to start a church in order to help all the people who were becoming Christians through it. 18 months ago, they launched a church It is now 400 strong. 85% of them are new Christians that have come through this community grocery. That's revival. And, and they were like, look, what, this is messy. And I'm like, that's revival too. You see, this is a representative of the how we should be living as Christians. So the question would be, what is God calling us to? will apart church. Then there's this thing called Love Where You Live. This is the community grocery. Love Where You Live is where they serve their community. Again, not just so they want to tidy up people's gardens, because that's a nice thing to do, but they have three purposes. Number one, social action. Number two, we're going to pray for you. So don't give us a street to look after unless we find people on there. that We're going to pray for them unapologetically, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we're going to tell you our story. Hundreds of people have come to know Jesus around Withenshaw because of that. So then they said, well, we'll have a picnic in the park. All the people that we clean up their gardens come to the park. And we just want to bless you. We'll put on a party. Bring your kids. So over Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they had 30,000 people join them. 30,000 people a day. Because they pulled up some people's weeds in their yard. Not in a, we just want to serve you. But we're going to pull up this weed while we tell you about Jesus. It was so significant, this blew my mind, there was 5,000 responses to the gospel, by the way, over the weekend, and they're still coming in. It was so significant, I know. There was a fly past, like, World War II fly past over the thing, like, wow, you know when you're having influence when they organize a fly past. That wasn't my iPhone 11 photography, by the way, it wouldn't, it's not quite as good as that, sorry apple so when God started the plan he had this and this in mind that's the plan and we're invited to come into it follow my script but then a different voice enters the narrative did God really say and Phil talked about this last week did God really say for God knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil See Satan is the enemy of a flourishing life. Yes, yeah, Satan, really. You want evidence that we're living in a land that has an enemy? Switch on the news. No more evidence needed. This is not flourishing. Another mass shooting. This is not flourishing. So the enemy comes in and he says, "Look, <laughs> you know better." I know better. You can decide for yourself what's good and evil. You can decide what is flourishing. Follow your own script. Where you decide what's better. Because after all, the voice, the enemy in our culture, and you, can just, you just have to wake up in the morning and reach for your phone to hear the voice. Can, God, can what God says be trusted? Really? After all, you know better about what's good and right for you you know how to flourish. That's the temptation Eve was experiencing. This is the temptation we experience, Christians or not, every day of our lives. Can God be trusted? You know what's good and right for you. Don't let anybody judge you. You live your own truth. You, you know, you be you. Does it Sound familiar? You know how to flourish. Eve's temptation is our temptation. Question is, does it actually cause us to flourish? No, obviously not. Let me put it into a little bit more of uh, an example for you so you can apply it. Take any issue in our culture that would be seen as not biblical. Whether it be sex before marriage, sexuality, gender, greed, materialism, consumerism, any of the other isms can what god say be trusted about sex after all you know better about what is good and right and what feels good for you you know how to flourish you see, the Bible talks about sex being, literally in the Hebrew, a mingling of the souls. This is such a powerful concept, such a powerful event, that the only way that it can be encased safely is within a godly marriage, a loving marriage, because it is so powerful to bring flourishing and also decay and destruction. That's what the Bible says. Is that a popular thing to say? God says, keep it in marriage. Yeah, yeah. But can what God says be trusted? You see, the voice then takes it a step further and says, well, that, what you just said, Pastor Glenn, is bigoted. It's judgmental. It's unloving. At worst, it's hateful. You see, we're not in Kansas anymore, Christian friend. What was seen as respected ...and held up a value because it was on biblical standards... ...is now seen as not just irrelevant but dangerous. John Tyson in his book Creative Minority says this... ...personal faith is welcome by expressing your convictions... ...or espousing ideas as truth in public... ...is uncouth at best... ...and often taken as coercive, intolerant or even threatening. See the new script is the same script that Satan was using... "as you know better. Did God really say... And he's clever because he doesn't just outright dismiss God. He questions what God says. He questions the integrity, putting it into our modern vernacular as Christians. He questions the integrity of the Bible. He reinterprets what God said. Remember I said that. Satan reinterprets God's word. Doesn't dismiss it. He's too clever for that. He reinterprets it. Did God really say I know a better way of interpreting the Bible. Let's look at it again together. Does it actually say that? There are other ways of reading that, you know. Because after all, God is love. He wants you to be happy. This, fill in the space, makes you happy. Therefore, God is good with it. It's called moral therapeutic deism. It's the the new religion. God wants me to be happy, therefore it's okay. But the consequences of taking our own script away from the script that God intended are enormous. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So she took God's script for her life. She tore it up in a diva, pious kind of way. And she developed her own, their own, self-destructive, self-serving plot of their own based on their experiences and their ideas and their interpretation of what God said. And as a result, by their own free will, sin floods in. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. God's serious about sin. Sin floods in. So here are some thoughts, some observations, if you like. Notice, and I'm not going to read it again. I'm going to let you listen and read through it again for yourself. And this is something that I'd never noticed in 30-some years of preaching. Never notice this. You're going to go, well, yeah, duh. But I didn't notice it. Observation number one, Satan and our relationship with the ground is cursed, not us. God never cursed Adam and Eve. What He did curse was Satan and the ground and our relationship with the ground. You are not cursed. You are broken. You are maybe sin ravaged. You are not cursed. And what it tells us is that no matter how hard we work on relationships in our life, the ground if you will and our relationships and with eve it was the husband no matter how hard you work on relationships you are going to find it will never ever ever be enough it will never produce the fruit that you are seeking from it it will always be hard work outside of the plan of god for your life in other words it's never going to flourish in the way that god designed it to be so this cursing is on the world if you will and as living in it and as the old song says, showing my age, we can't get no satisfaction. We just can't. It's never enough. And we know this to be true. Those of you who love gadgets, you buy a gadget. Got a bit of kit for that. You, get a, you bit, uh, It's an inside joke. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Just popped in my head, Ian. Ian is, Ian, I've got a bit of kit for that Richardson. Because no matter what we problem we give him and on staff, he's always got a bit of kit. It's brilliant. If you're gadgety in your mind... You get the gadget, if you're like me, you research it, you're looking at reviews, you're like, ooh, this is great, you talk to friends, you get it, it's great. And it lasts like a day and a half and then you want something else. The ground will never make me satisfied. And if you're looking for the satisfaction that is wired inside of you from anything that this planet produces, even if that relationship is wonderful, then what you're actually doing is you're dumbing down the creation that God has placed into your life. You were created for more than that. Something divine, something powerful, something significant. We are created to flourish. So observation number one, Satan and our relationship with the ground is not cursed. The ground is cursed. Observation number two, Sin results in a compounded, catastrophic consequence. I enjoyed putting that together. The more C's, the better. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. This word offspring is a really important word. It literally means seed. Think of it as spiritual descendants. And so from this moment on, God is saying that there is going to be an out-of-control warping that happens through life. And you immediately see the evidence of it. If you read Genesis, you'll see story after story after story of this warping, out-of-control sin spreading, compound interest. And the consequence of this sin, the Bible tells us, is death. And if you read Romans chapter 1, that explains it a little bit more. It's not just ultimate death, going to hell. We believe that. It's also life-lived death. Because it's not flourishing. It's not life. It's death. You go off the script, it's death. And we see it out of control, spreading like wildfire through the Bible until we get to today. And what we see today is a brokenness around us in the world. And also a brokenness inside of us. Friends, I need to press this point about sin. Satan has been clever. He's made sin something like, oh, it's a bit of a sin to have an extra bit of cake. No. Like, oh, it's a bit of a sin to have that bit of chocolate. He's diminished sin down to something that is just like about wrong behavior. And if we make sin about our wrong behavior, what we will do is we'll also try and find other behavior to try and correct it. So sin in the world spreading like wildfire, evidence of it everywhere, evil everywhere. What we see is, well, let's do more social action. Uh, Not going to work. It's not going to work. It hasn't worked up until now. It won't work now. Now you go, hang on, we just talked about social action. But it's not just giving the food. It's actually giving life and food. Life in Jesus Christ. So we'll improve our education. We'll change our policies. We'll have a better distribution of wealth. All these are changes of behavior if we see sin as just behavioral. We'll make it better healthcare. We'll, we'll improve the agencies. We'll just do, we'll, we'll spend. We'll, and all the time, as we read the Bible, what we see is that sin is intrinsic In our lives, it's a heart issue. We don't have a problem with our system. We have a problem with systemic sin. And it doesn't matter what system you place on top of that. It is always going to cause us sinful responses. Evil will continue to spread. It will affect everyone. We're connected. And you might be suffering under the sin of someone else. We teach about generational sin as part of the set free that we're going to be doing again in the fall. The sins of your mothers and fathers. Even now they're finding scientists genetically can see how sin is passed through generations. Hardwired into our DNA. That's science, that's not Bible, although you find it in Genesis 3. Maybe your parents, your friends. Our world is affected, our environment. I tell you what, I gotta confess, if this is a safe place, I'm tired of recycling stuff. My wife, I love her, she's amazing. She is like, she's giving me a look. Like recycling in our house? She will hunt you and your crisp packet down. (laughs) Whose is this? Jack and I are like, I don't know. I'm on keto, wasn't me. I don't eat chips. Like we've got recycling bags and compost. Even now, I love you babe. We've got a compost thing underneath our sink, but now we've got something inside the compost bin to put in a brown paper bag because the compost bin, was like she's amazing and you need to talk to her and I love you for it, but I'm really tired of it. And it's just a reflection of the sin and evil in our world because our environment, I tell you what does really break my heart is the oceans. The plastics, do we have a responsibility? Does it mean to go, oh, well, we don't even bother? No, Sarah's 100% right. Do you hear that, love? I'm 100% wrong. I can't believe I've just had that recorded. She's going to make that her ringtone, right? In the environment, she's absolutely right. We should be, we have a responsibility. But even in the clothes that we buy, the way we spend our money affects other people catastrophic consequences to the idea that we can go off script. It's such a beautiful script. This ripple effect of sin in our relationships, and our marriages, in our politics, in our society. Sin hurts. Sin is death. The Bible says it. The wages of sin is death. So observation three really is quite obvious. Sin is bad for us. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's a great quote. It's not just that sin is disobedience against God. Yes, it is true. But it actually is bad for us. We live in Kettle Valley, and, and Kettle Valley has a bylaw that says, and maybe this is all around Kelowna, but you, you've got to clear the path in front of your house of snow. I hate this bylaw. You know, you've got to clear it because otherwise people walk on it, and it compounds down, and it freezes, and somebody's going to fall. Yeah, right. But every day, whenever it snows, I'm out there, or Jack is out there, or somebody's out there, preferably Sarah if she's not recycling, (laughs) shoveling snow, clearing our path, and then we get really righteously pious and judgmental when you walk around the rest of the kettle and you go, well, they haven't cleared this. What's going on here? And you stand out somebody's house and you give them the glare. You know? How many of you are with me? Oh, the rest of you need prayer. But there's a reason. Oh, it's just a little bylaw. Who cares? Sin's just a behavior. Who cares? Breaking the law a bit. It's just clearing snow. But the consequence actually is bad. Somebody could fall and break something, get a concussion, die, literally. Yeah, but it's just breaking a law a bit. No, there's a reason that God put this into place because it's the best for us. It's not just that we're being disobedient to God. It's bad for us too. So the law, God's script is there to protect us and others from harm as well as honoring him. So disobeying God is a sin against him and human flourishing. Observation number four, small decisions like, yeah, I'll eat it, that lead to huge consequence and pain. This hit me hard this week, the whole concept of reaping and sowing. And we don't actually know. If you said what fruit was it that Eve ate from and Adam ate from, you'd go, Come on, what would you say? An apple, it doesn't actually say that. I actually like to think it's a banana, just saying. (laughs) Um, Coconut, a little bit more hard work. It's the smallest decision in your life that will actually lead to consequence and sin. It's a sequence. It's a first small sin, first first look, first conversation, first watch, first surf on the net that makes the second one easier, the third one easier still. And then you've got a pattern and a habit. And before you know, you've stepped away from the script that God has planned for you, and you're no longer flourishing, now you're living feeling like death. Some of you are caught up in that habitual sin that started with one small decision, and our greatest regrets are often preceded by the smallest of decisions. Because we think we can follow our our script. So, let's lift this up as I finish. So what's God going to do about it? How's God going to fix this? Phil texted me while I was in uh, Britain this last week. And he said, I left you the best bit. And at first I was like, "Mm, really? And he was right. See, that's the second time now. I've got Sarah who's right and Phil, you're right as well. I will put enmity, but this is what God's going to do. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy. It's not called a covenant. This prophecy about what's going to happen. This is the first glimpse of Jesus and how one day he will come and put the world to rights. God, right at the beginning, starts this mega theme, this meta-narrative, this big idea, the Jesus code, if you like, that runs all the way through the scripture. He's coming. Buckle up. He's coming. Every story in the Bible will flow out of this one promise. And notice that Eve you see, we've got this seed, this offspring, and hers, he. So he goes from this generality of this generational spiritual seed when it comes to the enemy of our world, and then he personalizes the pronoun. "He, Jesus, will crush your head and he will strike, you will strike his heel. that God is going to bring a back. He's going to redeem. He's going to to reconcile back to the original order. He's going to invite Christians, those who believe in him, and confess him as Lord. He's going to invite you back into the narrative, the script, that we're all designed for. And the way that is going to happen is going to be a cosmic spiritual battle between the two seeds. You've got Satan's offspring, sin and shame, and you have Jesus, this enormous spiritual battle is going to happen. The second that Jesus, this, the story starts, but when Jesus comes and explodes into history, that our whole history is never going to be the same as the result of Jesus walking this planet. The world will kill him, but it'll be a mere nip on his heel. You know when you kind of resort, those of you who are kids Some of your kids have kind of got a little bit of a, maybe a little shove, and then you've got that one kid that says, I see your shove, and I'm going to raise you a punch in the face. You might have one of those kids. Part of me kind of likes that, just saying, because it's it's not as a dad, that's bad, kids. But this is what Jesus is doing. I see your nip on my heel, I'm going to smash you in the face. And what is it that he's smashing? What is it that he's crushing? You see, Satan thought he won that day when Jesus said, It is finished, and gave up his spirit. He thought he had won. But this prophecy kicks in and I will crush, he will crush Satan's head, all the sin, all the shame, all the consequence that is attached to the decision that Adam and Eve made. That that compounded, catastrophic sin that we see evidence of is that when Jesus died on that cross, he took all that sin, all that shame and crushed it. And the consequence of my personal free will decision to sin, the consequences of my shame, my death, everything that is in my life that I know is not flourishing. He absorbs on the cross and kills it. True freedom and flourishing is suddenly possible when you say yes to Jesus. You see, Jesus walked this planet and he showed us the best way to be human. And then he went to the cross and says, I'll help you, I will enable you, I will empower you and equip you to live that way too. Go open the community groceries. Go see thousands of people come to know me. And what he does is he takes all those incredible gifts that everybody, but his common grace, is able to enjoy. Everything from eating a great steak To sex, relationships, food, drink, possessions, beauty, art. He takes all of that and says, you think that's good outside of Christ? You wait to see what that's like when you're flourishing in Christ. They become more beautiful in Jesus. And I want to leave you with this. Genesis 3, 21. One of the most beautiful verses in this whole passage. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. See, in ancient Israel, this is a sign. If you took clothing off one of your children, I'm going to be a minute. <laughs> Instead of take, when you took clothing off one of your children, you were disinheriting them. When you put clothing on ceremoniously, one of your kids, you were bringing them back in the family. So you remember the prodigal son? One of the first actions that the father did was give them some clothes. He's saying, this is my son. It doesn't matter what you have done. We'll deal with that. You're still my daughter. You're still in my family. And that is what God did. And not only that, he looked for them. You see, Adam and Eve were hiding from God. Please listen to this. Just, just, just listen to me just for a second. This, this is so important. We believe that God hides from us. We hide from God. We believe that God withdraws, that we feel exposed and ashamed, we feel naked, he's not with us. We sense the breach between us and him because of our willful sin in our lives. We believe that God is angry and uninterested like a really rubbish dad. We think God leans away and we believe that we have to clean ourselves up first Yet he comes looking for us first. That he loves us first. He died first. He took the death first. And I'm not interested in taking it second. In fact, death is no longer part of my future. See, he came first and beats death's consequence first. He came looking first. All the while, when you and I are hiding in the middle of our sin and shame, he comes looking for you. And I am totally convinced there are a number of people in this room who are desperately trying to hide in a, like, what are we thinking trying to hide from God? Yeah, but it says, where are you? That's not because God doesn't know where you are. That's a question for you and I to ask ourselves. Where am I? So where are you? Which script are you following? Which voice are you listening to? Is it the voice of flourishing and life? Or is it the voice of you are convinced? Give me especially young adults. You think you're invincible and invincible and nobody can defeat you. Trust me. The same sin done over and over and over will leave not only a neural pathway, but it will actually leave death in your life. So which script? Where are you? Come follow Jesus and learn what it means to be truly human. That's what this story is about. Isn't that amazing? That he came looking for you first? So the question is, whether I ask you to put your hand up or not, hand up in a service is great. But actually what happens right in this moment when you're stood in front of a loving God and, said, and he says, I took that sin and shame And it died with me. Are you going to say yes to that voice? Or are you so convinced in your own script that you say no? And you will take death and the consequence first instead of him. That's what the Bible says. Choose life or die. Oh, Glenn. There's consequence. But Jesus says, I will take that consequence for you. Amen. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Oh, dear Lord. Father, I just, (laughs) I don't know what song we're singing next, but Lord, my lungs, my heart, my mind are just filled with the glory of the gospel. That you would choose me, that you would come looking for me, that you would make me the clothes of righteousness and offer them to me that I could flourish. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who, Lord, have not yet made that decision to, to follow your script that, Lord, that they would cry out for forgiveness, that, Lord, they would seek your face and enjoy the beauty of everything, Lord, that you promise. Jesus, thank you that today you crush the head of Satan, that that promise has not changed. And, Lord, I pray that there will be people in this room, Lord, that will, that will appropriate that, that, that promise into their lives by them confessing you, Jesus, as Lord. And Lord, they would not leave this place without having got prayer. Lord, we cry out for our city, our province, our country, our world. But Lord, I'm thankful that Genesis 3 tells us that you have a beautiful, beautiful plan. And his name is Jesus. Hallelujah.